what would it take for you to believe that God wants you to be happy? He really wants you to be happy. What would it take for you to believe this morning that God actually wants you to be happy? Maybe you have a narrative going on in your head that sounds something like, get this, uh, God's mean, or God doesn't want my happiness, or God likes other people more than he likes me. I'm not sure he really loves me that much. I'm not sure he's really pleased with me. I'm not sure he's really satisfied me. And it's shocking to some of us that God actually wants your joy. He actually wants your happiness. He made you. He knows you. You're his kid. And what parent doesn't want their kids to be happy and to find their joy in this Life In James 1, it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Why does it have to say it that way? Why does it combine those two things? Because we're tempted to think when God gives us something good, it can't be trusted. He's going to make us do something to enjoy that good thing. So it says, don't be deceived, brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom? There is no variation or shadow or change. And that last part signifies what we've been talking about some, that you cannot be happy without a God that there is no variation, shadow, or change. A God who is altogether sovereign. And so as we wrap up this series on sovereignty, I want to remind us today that you really can't be happy in this life without having a God who is sovereign. Not only do we have a God, but we have a God who's in control. And we have a God who knows us and loves us. As it says in Psalm 115, as I've quoted to before, God is in the heavens and he does whatever pleases him. And having a God who is sovereign, I want to admit this, and I've admitted this throughout the series, creates some problems. Once we establish that we have a God who is sovereign, who is in control, that's going to create a number of problems for us. We're going to ask the question, Why? We're going to wonder about intent. We're going to wonder about timing. We're going to wonder how he's going to work these things together for good. It's going to create all of those dilemmas, and we understand that. I understand that. I love what Johnny Erickson Tada says. And if you don't know Johnny Erickson Tada, because I find her to be um, a generational taste, unfortunately. But you need to know who Johnny Erickson Tada is. If you don't know her, go home and Google her today and buy one of her books and look at her life. It's absolutely astounding. She's a a friend and a family friend as well. She said, sometimes God allows what he hates to produce what he loves. Sometimes God actually has to allow what he hates to produce what he actually loves. Not having a belief in sovereignty will create more problems than having a belief in sovereignty. Because if you don't have a belief in sovereignty, then that's gonna to lead to either control or chaos. Now work with me, put on some academic hats here just for a second. If you don't have a God who is sovereign over all things, who is in control over all things, who can touch and manage all things, if you don't have a God like that, then that's gonna to resort to you having to control your life and you'll never be free. You'll never be able to live in freedom if you have to control your life. And if you don't have a God who's sovereign, your life will be given to trying to control it. And then the questions will come out like this. Why did I turn left instead of right? Why didn't I get there an hour earlier? What if I just tried harder? Why didn't I do better? 
What if I said this to my son instead of this to my son? What if I took this job instead of this job? If you don't have a God who's sovereign over all things, your life will be plagued with trying to control it and self-doubt and wondering why you didn't do something different to get different sets of results. Or it will be plagued with chaos. You'll live in fear because you'll wonder, is there ever going to be any justice is this world, without a God who's on his throne, is this world just given to absolute chaos? And we're looking for that. I don't know if you've noticed that, but in 2022, the world is looking for uh, justice. Who's on the throne? Who's in charge? Whether in the courtrooms of Minneapolis or on the border of San Luis Potosi or uh, in the streets of Portland, Everybody is trying to figure out who's actually in charge, who actually has justice. How is this, how are we going to put this thing that we've unraveled somehow back together? But we have a God who wants us to be happy, who's altogether sovereign and in control. And how do I know he wants you to be happy? Well, he says so. Verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1, blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy. You know what blessed means? It means happy. Fortunate. We translate it blessed, and that has some like religious connotation to it. But when he goes through the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are those uh, pure in heart, for they shall seek the Lord. For example, Matthew 5 8. When he says those things, happy is the person who does these things. Happy is the person who reads the book of Revelation. Let me read Revelation. Uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through 18. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead the ruler of the kings on earth to him who he loves and has freed us from his sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever amen behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, on the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to uh, Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And from his, faith, 
face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to learn today that God is sovereign, and we're going to also learn how the world ends. Revelation 1 tells us how the world ends. The context of Revelation is John on the island of Patmos uh, sending out these letters, these visions, to a bunch of people who are scared and afraid, a bunch of people who are being slaughtered by their faith. They don't know who's left anymore. They don't know. The churches in Asia don't know if the churches in Ethiopia are still alive and kicking. They don't know what's happened to their brothers in Corinth. They don't know what's happened to their friends in Jerusalem. Everybody's scattered. And the Roman kingdom is fierce, and it is on a path to complete destruction of the Christians. And here John, exiled at Patmos, writes this letter, reminding them that God is on the throne and that he's going to return. And if you're taking notes, those are the two points. Let me give them to you. If God is on the throne, then you're free. Number two, if God will return, then you need not fear. If God's on the throne, then you're free. Number two, if God's going to return, you need not fear. I love what Daryl Johnson says about Revelation chapter 1. He says, what appears to the naked eye on the plane of human history to be weak, helpless, haunted, poor, Defeated congregations of Jesus' faithful servants prove to be the true overcomers who participate in the triumph of the lion and the conquering of the slain lamb. What appeared to be the invincible forces of controlling history, the military, political, religious, economic complex that's Rome, is a system sown with the seeds of its own self-destruction, already feeling the first lashes of the wrath of the lamb. All these people... Wondering where God is now. Our friends are getting slaughtered. We don't even know if people are existing anymore. We don't know if God's, how is this going to happen? This little band of brothers that took the gospel to Asia Minor, and John's just trying to keep them alive, are having to believe like never before that God is sovereign and that God is on his throne. And if God is on his throne, then you are free. I love what it says, verse 4 and 5. This image, we're going to see all the way throughout the book of Revelation. And if you stayed with me when I preached on Revelation a couple years ago, you saw this image again and again and again. That here God is on his throne, verse 4, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And all of these people around him worshiping, that he has not left his throne. You know, there's so many movies that we have and shows in America based on the question of who's in charge, whether it's Patriot Games or uh, White House Down. I've never seen that, but I think the White House gets blown up or something. I think it's Jamie Foxx. Um, or a Designated Survivor. And we have a, a whole cadre of movies, a whole genre of movies that ask the question, what happens if all of our leadership gets wiped out? There's a whole system of movies and shows that address that. And here, John wants to establish in Revelation chapter 1, I know you might feel like nobody's on their throne. I know you might feel like you're getting absolutely slaughtered right now, but rest assured, the one who was and who is 
and who is to come is on his throne. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of heaven, and nothing has changed since then. He's still seated. He's still there. He hasn't abdicated. He's not playing king of the hill with other gods trying to ascend his way to the top. God is still as sovereign today as he was at the ascension, and nothing's going to change that. Now, if that's true, then you can be free. If, if that's not true, then your life will be one of control. But if this is true, that you can be free. Because look at what it says in the next paragraph. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sin. It, it says it here. It says it also, if you want some references in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 18, and verse 21. In all of those, Romans 6, 7, 18, and 22, I'm sorry. In all of those, it says you are free from your sin. If God is on this throne, what he says is you can now be free from your sin. Did you see that uh, article about the sheep? You know, back in the day, sheep used to shed uh, their wool. And then we started shedding their wool be for them so we could make your sweaters. My sweaters, too. I didn't mean to put that all on you. Make, make our sweaters. And uh, so then they evolved, uh, micro, not micro. So then they evolved in a sense where uh, they don't shed anymore. And they found this sheep. And he was all, he was covered with 77 pounds of wool because he, sh he couldn't shed it. Which means he, the predators could get him. He was about to die. He was having heart failure. He was having all of these problems. And that's what sin does to us. If we don't confess it, if we don't get it off of us, if we don't let go of it, it will eventually surround us. It will enslave us. It will weigh us down. It will be a burden. Even the good things in our lives can be idols if we don't get them off with confession. And so they found this sheep, and they took him to an animal rescue place, uh, and it was called the sanctuary. What a great name for an animal rescue place. And they put a press release out about what they were doing. It took them hours to get all of these pounds of wool off of them. And then they put out the press release. They've got to be Christians. I don't know that for a fact. But here was the press release. They named him Barak. That's neither here nor there, but I thought it was funny. They said, no longer shall he struggle for food and shelter. No longer will he be at the mercy of predators. No longer Will he ever be forgotten? I can cry at a sheep story. It's just it's silly. I know. But when I heard that, I almost heard the voice of the Lord over me saying, No longer will you ever have to struggle for food and shelter. You're my child. No longer will you be at the mercy of predators or your own sin. You can be free from it. No longer will you be forgotten. You can't control your sin. You can't manage your sin, but you can confess it, and you can be freed from it. And what I've told you for years is this. The concept of freedom biblically is not freedom from, but it's also freedom to, which is why it says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, Priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory, dominion forever and ever. That what God says is, now I'm freeing you from your sin so that you can be a priest 
I know you're not Levites, but we get to be priests, all of us. Male, female, young, old. It says in 1 Peter, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know what it means when you're free? Religion, as my journey group was reminded this past week, religion means you obey to get God to love you. The gospel means God loves you, now you get to obey. You get to serve, you get to be a priest. And Henri Nouwen, he points it out this way. This is the last long quote, but let me give it, give it to you. Those who really can receive bread from a stranger and smile in gratitude can feed many without realizing it. Those who can sit in silence with their fellow man, not knowing what to say, but knowing they should be there, can bring new life to a dying heart. Those who are not afraid to hold a hand in gratitude or to shed tears in grief or to let a sigh of distress arise straight from the heart can break through paralyzing boundaries and witness the birth of new fellowship, the fellowship of the broken. Once you're free from sin, and once I'm free from sin, once we confess that and we come to Jesus and we realize he's on the throne, then he makes us priests and we go give grace and mercy to others. And it's not that hard. Matter of fact, I want you to think about it. Who in your life this week that you're going to come in contact with because they're already on your schedule, and it might just be your mom or your dad or your spouse or your kids. It might be somebody like that, or it might be a business associate. Who is it that you can change your mindset to, and you can go in saying, I'm going to give them grace and mercy. I'm going to be a priest. I'm going to see if I can connect them with who Christ is. And what it says is this fellowship of the broken. When I read that phrase, I thought about going into, uh, I, I did it one time. I went into a China shop one time. That's the only time I've ever been in a China shop. Don't ever plan to go in again. I hated the whole thing because there was just uh, breakables everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And all I could think was that phrase, you break it, you buy it. And I thought, there's a lot I can't afford in here. Uh, and I think that's how we live through life. You know, you sin, you figure it out. You, you repay it. You somehow make amends for it. Or if you go into a a shop with your two-year-old, a toddler, or you're a golden retriever puppy. <laughs> with you break it, you buy it. It's going to be a miserable experience. But what Christ puts, his banner over us is this. You break it and I'll redeem it. And so we live in the fellowship of the broken, which means our lives are broken, our marriages are broken, our relationships are broken, our hearts are broken, our bodies are broken, and every time we find something broken, we take it to Jesus and we say, can you buy this back for me? Can you redeem this as well? I found something else that I broke in my life. That's all life is, is we gather a kingdom of priests and take our brokenness back to him. And then he goes on to say, look at verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now that's an interesting phrase, because he's coming back, and then for some, of all the people in the Gospels they could have highlighted, they highlighted the people that pierced him. Couldn't have been more than two or three guys, I don't think. He was pierced in the side. It didn't say he was pierced 
multiple times. He was piercing his hands and his feet, so maybe five at most, four at most. But in other words, what the Gospel of John, or what John through Revelation is trying to communicate at this point is this. Even the people that thought, hmm, I'm done with you, Jesus. I just ran you through with my sword. I just put this nail in your hand. Even those people who thought the whole deal was over because they killed Jesus will see that he's still alive. That you can't conclude what Christ is going to do. I was with my counselor this week. And at one point, uh, I said to her, well, I already know what's going to happen. And about 10 minutes later, she said, can I go back to something you said earlier, which I've learned from counseling? That means she's got me. She just gave me 10 minutes to run the line out, but I was already on the hook. I mean, I'm sure as soon as she said that, she was like, mm, I just bid. I'll just let them run that line for a while. And okay, now I'll reel him in. She said, do you, do you really think? She said, I know your theology. Do you really think that this is a foregone conclusion? that God can't work here? Is your belief so fatalistic? She didn't say that. Now this is me riffing. So fatalistic that you think the whole thing is over? Or because God is sovereign and on his throne, do you have a world of possibilities of what God can do in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, for your joy, for your freedom in this world, in this culture, in this county, in this city, in your neighborhood, on your teams. Because God is sovereign, we don't have to be fatalistic. And grace and sovereignty means that things don't have to work a certain way. There aren't foregone conclusions. So let me ask as I close out this point, how do you want God to work? If he's on his throne and he's sovereign, what are you asking him to do? How do you want him to change you? or others. And then lastly, and very quickly, if God will return, we need not fear. What we see, verse 12 and following, is this vision of God returning. And there's a lot of things that you can fix your eyes on. You can fix your eyes on the news this afternoon. You can fix your eyes on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or whatever your social media drug of choice is. Let's just put it that way. But eventually you're going to get to the end of it and press refresh and there's nothing really new to see. You can spend all of your day doing that kind of stuff. Or you can fix your eyes on Jesus and there's always something new to see. I've been studying the Bible professionally for well over 20 years. And there's always something new that I learn when I come to it. And here we see this vision which reminds us, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And we see this picture of Christ returning who will return. Now, almost like uh, when you do a wedding and I get the privilege to do a lot of these. Did one a couple weeks ago. And the groom is here and the bride is there. And uh, when the doors open, and you nod to the mom, and the mom stands up, and the bride and the groom watching them look at each other. And the congregation, I love watching the congregation because the congregation is looking at the bride and looking at the groom, looking at the bride, looking at the groom. That's what they're doing to, to see how they're looking at each other. If that happens, if the doors open and the groom is not looking at the bride, we've got a problem. If he's like looking at the bridesmaids going, he's your number. If he's doing that, 
we have, we've got some major problems. If that ever happens, I'm going to stop the wedding. <laughs> but you know what's going to change this world? When non-Christians look at us looking at Christ. And when they see the radiance on our faces, because we're all together satisfied and pleased with our groom, and when the church is washed by the water of the word and is ready and is approaching the groom and is ready to serve him, that's what's going to change. And when the world can then see how Christ looks at us, that's what will change this world. Not convincing people, not arguing people into it, not being right, not gaining power. Watching us even as martyrs look up to the heavens and be altogether satisfied that before we're beheaded, we're about to see Jesus. That's what will change this world. And so we get this picture. Let me walk really quickly through this. Uh, he turns and he sees these lampstands, which basically represent the church that he is, as it says in this text, in the midst of us. He knows our fears, our struggles. He's dressed in this robe. Clothing is the first statement of what you want people to recognize about you. And here he's dressed in this priestly robe. He's the bridge to God. And Christ in his return is saying, give me all your burdens. There's this golden sash. Keep looking at the text. Around his chest. It signifies accomplishments. It's not around his waist. It's around his chest. Like when you take a tassel at graduation and you move it from one side to another side. That means you've graduated. You're done with it. This sash is this sign of accomplishment saying it is finished. I've achieved everything I need to achieve. His hair and his head are white as wool. Describes it with the word like because it can't fully be described. It shows this agelessness and it symbolizes purity. His eyes are like blazing fire. I like what Johnson again says when he says, Christ is not only pure, he's purifying everything that he looks on. He will sanctify. His feet were like bronze glowing in furnace. This is a a playoff of what happens in Daniel where the kingdoms were feet of clay. And he says, no, he has feet of bronze, the strongest metal, because his kingdom's not going to fail. Rome fell. The U.S. will eventually fall. I hope not. It's the greatest country that's ever happened in the history of the world in my uh, assessment. But eventually... All kingdoms fall. All kingdoms fall. Except for the kingdom of Christ. It's the only one guaranteed to stand. So they can take our tax breaks. The church will not let the gates of hell ever prevail against it. And then his voice, like the sound of rushing waters, so powerful and yet calming. And in his right hand, these seven stars. There's a lot of... A lot of interest in that, but basically he has a whole universe in his hands. And out of his mouth, as it says, comes this double-edged sword because the word of God is living and is active. As a, William Barclay points out, this word for the sword is actually a short dagger. Meaning through his word, God wants to get close to you. And as my friend Randy Pope says, he wants to bleed you back to life. <laughs> he wants to get close to you with his word and 
stab you and cut away what he needs to. And his face was shining with all of his brilliance. And the response to that, look at what it says. When I saw him, I fell on his feet, though dead. The response is this beautiful picture of worship. Like, I am going to bow to your power and to your glory. So many of us, though, get uh, what I've said before, doxological uh, dementia. We just forget to worship. Doxological dementia. We forget to bow down. Sometimes you have to bow before you feel it. Uh, You bend the knee to the queen whether you want to or not, and sometimes you just have to bend the knee to remember who's in charge. Don't let yourself fall into doxological dilemma. But then God doesn't keep you there. Look at what he says. Immediately he raises, this is so beautiful about Jesus, by the way. He puts his right hand on him and he says, fear not, which comes back to the point. If God's going to return, you need not fear. You need not fear what's going to happen in the future. You need not fear what's going to happen with your life. You need not fear what's going to happen with politics. You need not fear what's going to happen with your kids. You need not fear what's going to happen with the church. If God's going to return, you need not fear. We'll bow at his feet and then he'll restore us and tell us not to fear because perfect love drives out fear. And then lastly, Look at what it says, verse 18. Oh, golly, I wish I had 20 sermons on this text. And the living one said, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and to Hades. Now, some people might not like that um, because it mentions, here Jesus is with the keys to hell. What does that look like? And, but here's what I would suggest. I wish I had more time to parse this out. Who else would you want to have the keys to hell? Who else would you possibly trust with that? Except a righteous, holy, just God who's on his throne and is altogether loving and compassionate. Let me say this and I'll be done. Christianity doesn't promise to give you all the answers, but it does promise that without Christ, you'll never know the answers and you'll never get them. One day we'll be able to see all things clearly Now we don't, and we admit that and fully admit that. But as C.S. Lewis says, no doubt all history in the last resort must be held by Christians to be a story with a divine plot. It's got to be held by Christians to be a story with a divine plot, even though we don't see all the chapters. Just to repeat the points, then one story. If God is on the throne, then you're free. And if God will return, you need not fear. In 2006, uh, probably at the height of my obsession with soccer, which is waning compared to some of you, um, but I can get really into it in spurts. It was a World Cup, and uh, I told everybody, this is back in the days of like TiVo, right, where you had to get a TiVo and you could record things, and I told everybody, do not, when I see you at church tonight, do not tell me the score of the game. Do not tell me the score of the game. It was the World Cup between France and Italy in 2006. Told everybody, I got to everybody, told everybody, I'm recording it. I've got counseling all day. Do not tell me the score of the game when I see you today. I'm going to go home. I'm going to clock out, and I'm going to watch it in peace without any of you. And just don't tell me anything. I got to everybody except for Renato Mancini. 
let's just say Renato Mancini was not rooting for France. <laughs> and he knew I was rooting for Italy. Uh, he, obviously, he was rooting for Italy. i never forget it. I walked in this door right here. Renato came in that door right there. And by the smile on his face, I knew who won. <laughs> I mean, immediately knew who won. And then he looked at me, he pointed, and he started undoing his shirt. <laughs> True story. And I thought, what in the world is happening right now? And then he pulled it out, and he had on an Italian jersey underneath the shirt, <laughs> a soccer jersey. Look at Italy. And I knew. I went home and watched the game anyway, but I immediately knew who won. There is a sense, friends, when we know who wins, we can rejoice Christ clothed himself in our humanity, but when he peels it back, he's the very son of God sitting on the throne, the one who says, I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the one who is and who was and who is to come. I am the almighty. That's the God you worship, and he's altogether worthy of it. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, now we prepare, we come, we sing this last song to you, and I wish we had another hour to worship. Uh, but all this day is to worship. We'll go to our own homes and our own neighborhoods, our own apartments. So may throughout this day we be free from our sin. May we confess it because you're on your throne. Make us priests that give love and grace to others. And, Father, we pray. Uh, that you would make us a people who need not fear because you're going to return. May our eyes and may our hearts be filled with the vision of who you are so that we would fall at your feet and feel your right hand lifting us up and saying, whispering to us, fear not. I've got the keys to all of this. I'm going to throw Satan in here forever but you're written in the book of life. Come with me, my son, my daughter. Father, we love you. Jesus, we thank you that you're stronger than our sin. And Holy Spirit, we love how you prick us and remind us and testify with our spirits that we're your children. We pray in your name. Amen.